why is it that all the traffic lights are red on Veterans Parkway when you're in a hurry? Why is it that the Illini are going to miss a whole bunch of foul shots today? Why is it that people get sick? Why is it that people die? Why is it that we have weeds? Why is it that your house doesn't clean itself? In fact, it left to itself, it just gets messier and messier. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7 this morning, where we're going to see the entrance of sin into the world. <clears throat> the answer to all of these problems, why do we have problems, is because of the entrance of sin into the world. If you have this question of what is the origin of evil, you've come to the best place in the Bible for addressing the question. We're in our series in Genesis 1 through 11, beginnings of good and evil, life and death, sin and salvation, and today we're going to be looking at this problem of evil. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word this morning? <clears throat> Genesis 1 or Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was be, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Please have a seat. <clears throat> it is the subtle distortion of truth that is the key to a successful deceit, and you will see how this serpent starts very subtly and then he ends up making outlandish claims. But let's begin with the subtle distortion here. The biggest and most subtle distortion was the serpent planting the seed of doubt of God's word in Eve's mind. Notice the serpent said, did God actually say? Trying to get people to doubt the Word of God has been a satanic plan from the very beginning. And by the way, you'll search in vain for a clear depiction that this serpent is actually Satan until you get to Revelation 12.9 and Revelation 20 verse 2 where it describes that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. We're introduced here to a world very different from our own, and 
just like we would look at history with the divide of the cross of Christ and things that happened before it and things that happened after it, we also can think of the world as it existed before Adam sinned in the garden and after he sinned in the garden. And so Eve does not appear to be disturbed at all that there's a serpent that's talking to her. That's a different world than we live in, right? It's just a different world. And you might ask the question, well, why did God create Satan? Why did he allow Satan to rebel along with other angelic beings? After all, 2 Peter 2.4 has some description of this. Uh, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Jude 6 talks about the same idea, angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. Um, we have a couple of other texts in the Old Testament, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, that are often offered as explanations of um, how Satan rebelled. Those are not without difficulties because they are, in fact, oracles to Babylon and Tyre, which makes it pretty difficult to make a tit-for-tat equation of all of the events described in those chapters it still creates an open question for us, doesn't it? Why did he allow, why did God allow Satan to rebel? Why did he create him? Why did he allow Satan to speak to Adam and Eve in the garden? The answer is, we don't know. But I will tell you this, God is not concerned about our knowing the details of angelic rebellion as much as he is interested about our knowing the details of our own rebellion. The point of the passage isn't to tell you all kinds of intellectually satisfying details about Satan's rebellion. The point of the passage is to tell you about your rebellion, my rebellion, God does not seem to concern himself with giving us answers to the whys that we often ask on the origin of evil. But the point of the judgment upon the world is always has two things to it. One is judgment on sin is always a way to reveal the awesome glory and power of God's holiness. And so we will see God's power and holiness writ on the pages of Scripture and in our own experience of life in his judgment of sin in ways that we would never see had it not happened. Secondly, the point of judgment is to draw people to repentance and trust. God is calling you to repent of sin and to put your trust in his son to save you from your sin. I would suggest that even if we were given clear, direct answers to these kinds of questions that we like to ask, they would not suffice us. They would only lead to more questions. It kind of reminds me of a thing that happened to my father-in-law. After, after my mother-in-law uh, died, uh, one day, uh, Carol was cutting his hair, and he said, well, what, what would you think if I got married again? And she goes, oh, Dad, that would be awesome. Do you have anybody in mind? He goes, 
Well, if I answer that question, it'll only lead to more questions. (laughs) I thought that was brilliant. But here's the point is that even if we got all of our questions answered about Satan, rebellion, and all that, why, and all that, it would only lead to more questions. God wants us to know the fact of the existence of evil and what to do about it. Now, when God's word is subject to our judgment, when we act as judge over God's word, sin is inevitable. The serpent here has cleverly placed Eve in the position of judge over the word of God. And whenever we place ourselves in a position as judge over God's word, we're already defeated. I can think of four ways in which you and I do this. At least as I think about my own sin, I do this in four ways. One is, I know what God's word says, but. You ever heard folks say that? Well, I know what the Bible says, but. And what whenever they get to the but, it's they're placing themselves in judgment over the word of God. Or how about this one? I don't know what God's word says, but if it says something that I disagree with, I won't follow it. And those folks are kind of like, don't tell me. I don't want to know if it's against God's word because I want to go my own way. A third thing is people often will say, who can really know what God's word says? There's so many interpretations and translations. It's really impossible to know what God's word says. And that's just a statement of, I want to be able to go my own way. Lastly, there are folks who say, I know that the Bible is not God's word. So while it may be handy inspirational material, it's not by any means an authority over my life. You see how the serpent had gotten Eve to doubt God's word and to be in judgment over God's word, and that is a pathway to rebellion. But that's not all. The serpent not only plants doubt about God's word, he also distorts God's word itself. I want you to look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, and compare it to chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Here's how the serpent refashions God's word. Verse 1, He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? God did not say what the serpent said God said. What God said was, eat from every tree. He's saying, didn't God say, you won't eat from any tree in the garden? Note the clever distortion. God's word was one of wide permission, emphasizing what Adam could do. The serpent's distortion was one of strict and even arbitrary prohibition, emphasizing what Adam could not do. And that's always one of Satan's key strategies, trying to turn the character of God into a strict, arbitrary being who does not care for us, nor does he want us to experience enjoyment. But that's not all. The woman's response to the serpent 
shows that her knowledge and understanding of God's word is also distorted. She does not know the word of God thoroughly enough to withstand the schemes of the devil. You remember what Paul said in Ephesians 6, right? Put on the whole armor of God to be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. I want you to compare what the woman said to what God actually said. Chapter 2, what God actually said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Notice that God is saying, go ahead, enjoy. The woman merely says it's a permission, not a go ahead and enjoy. We may eat of the trees in the garden. Notice God says, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Notice the woman distorts it. God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Where did that come from? Neither shall you touch it. There's no statement of that at all. The woman's response is distorted. She is thinking ill of her maker already. And so this leads to three lies then that the serpent tells Eve. The first one is found in verse 4, you will certainly not die. And I will label that the myth of reincarnation. Now, it does involve actually the doctrine of reincarnation as a myth, but it also, I want to use it in a general sense, the idea that we can kind of keep getting do-overs in this life. At its core, the idea of reincarnation is one of perpetual renewal. We're perpetually renewed. The body may die, but the person reappears again and again in this life in another body or life form. And notice that the serpent speaks with absolutes here. You will not surely die. Just like God had commanded, you may surely eat of any tree in the garden. Notice now Satan uses the same language, you will surely not die. With that kind of dogmatism, there's an assurance offered very similar to what reincarnation offers. The hint that Satan is giving here is that even if it's wrong to eat from the fruit, it's not that bad. And that's always the step we have to take in order to sin. We always have to somehow convince ourselves it's not that bad. Now, it's my view that the serpent had no idea what would happen if Adam and Eve ate the fruit. He only knew it would be a rebellion against God, which is what he's all about. As we saw in chapter 2, though, if Satan did know what eating the fruit would unleash, he's withholding information. The death that happened in the day that they ate of the fruit did not necessarily mean immediate physical death, boom, but rather it would begin a process, it would mean immediate spiritual death, which immediately would begin a process of physical death. So whether the serpent is talking about things he knows nothing about, or he is again distorting the facts, either way the serpent is deceptive or lying. Now, these days it seems that a lot of folks want to think that the idea of reincarnation is not all that repugnant an idea. 
So let me show you what's wrong with it. First, the idea that you will not die, you just kind of get to do it over and over again, promises, it promises that death is not an end to this life. But Hebrews chapter 9 tells us otherwise. Verse 27, it is appointed to man to die once and after that to face judgment. Secondly, the idea of reincarnation promotes works righteousness. That is, hey, if we get it wrong in one round, we get to go into the next round and maybe get it a little better. And on and on it goes until we reach some place of real wholesomeness and fulfillment. The Bible says very clearly, he saved us not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Thirdly, this idea that we will live forever, we just kind of do it over and over again, preaches horrors that cannot be controlled. There are horrors unleashed that can't be controlled. I have a book in my library that's entitled Coming Back, The Science of Reincarnation. That's an interesting title, isn't it? It's based on the teachings of a guy by the name of A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada. I had to work at pronouncing that. But he speaks very dogmatically about what reincarnation, this idea that you can live forever and just kind of do over, do over, do over will get you. For example, here's what he says about politicians. A politician who is inordinately attached to the land of his birth will certainly be reborn in the same land after ending his political career. Even though a politician may be allowed to take birth in his so-called homeland, he still has to undergo suffering due to his sinful activities in his previous life. Or how about this about dreams? In dreams, we sometimes see things we've never experienced. Sometimes in dreams, we think we're flying, though we have no experience of flying. This means that once in a previous life, we were either a demigod or an astronaut. The impression is that there's a stockpile of the mind and it suddenly expresses itself. Or how about this? A man gets his next life's birth according to what he thinks of at the time of his death. If someone is too attached to his wife, naturally he thinks of his wife at the time of death, and in his next life he takes the body of a woman. Similarly, if a woman thinks of her husband at the time of death, naturally she gets the body of a man in her next life. Do you see how there's a a whole range of horrors that are unleashed by this idea of do over, do over, do over. In fact, any denial, not just reincarnation, but any denial of the promise of spiritual death due to sin has these three problems. That death is not the end of life in this life. That works are the way in which we solve the problem. And it unleashes horrors that cannot be controlled. Those three problems are there no matter if one is promoting reincarnation or not. And by the way, we see this today in American culture, in body, cult, uh, body image. I mean, people will say, advertise to you, you don't have to get old. All you have to do is put this cream on your face, do these exercises, and take this supplement, and you will live forever. It's the same lie, folks. We are all dying. 
Now, can we do things to hasten it? Yeah, we can. (laughs) But the world is trying to tell you, you don't have to get old. What do you have to do? You just have to keep working hard, works-based righteousness. And what do you end up with? Horrors. One only has to see what ancient Hollywood stars look like after all of their plastic surgeries to get a physical picture of the horrors unleashed by such an idea. Line number one, you will certainly not die. Line number two, your eyes will be opened. The myth of enlightenment. You'll you'll, you'll see things in ways you never saw before. It's going to be wonderful. The path to peace among all peoples is by all of our eyes being opened in the same way. And this enlightenment will bring everyone to the place of the same insight as God himself. The anthem of such enlightenment is John Lennon's song, Imagine, right? Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll, it's an evangelist, right? Someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. Um, There's a guy named Steve Turner who has done some studies on Lenin's life. And while he expressed atheism in the early 70s and consulted psychics and dabbled in tarot cards, numerology, other occult things, his Strangely, toward the end of the 70s, he had a renewed interest in, and in fact, briefly embraced Christianity. Uh, It didn't come by reading the sermons of Charles Spurgeon or C.S. Lewis, as we might have liked. Lenin was addicted to watching television, and so he watched television evangelists like Oral Roberts and Pat Robertson and Jim Baker, Billy Graham. In 1972, he wrote a desperate letter to Oral Roberts, confessing his dependence on drugs and his fear of facing up to what he called the problems of life. He expressed regret that he had said that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus, and he enclosed a gift for Oral Roberts University. He wrote this, explain to me what Christianity can do for me. Is it phony Can he love me? I want out of hell. Briefly, in the late 70s, he expressed his Christian identity only to be talked out of it by his wife, Yoko Ono. But this idea of enlightenment is a a horror that gets unleashed. You know, Satan says, your eyes will be opened, but it's a, a horror. Listen, there's morality. There's right and wrong only because there's a moral personal God. God is not both good and evil. That's what Buddhism asserts, that good and evil are exactly equal and there's no difference between the two. 
God's not indifferent about good and evil. God gave the command not to eat of the tree precisely to protect human beings from evil. When our eyes are open to good and evil, we blindly accept both and often have great difficulty discerning the difference between the two. You know what the, Old Te- uh, what the New Testament calls this eyes being opened that the serpent promises? The Bible in the New Testament calls that darkness. Romans 1, 21, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, neither were they thankful, but became foolish in their imaginations and their foolish hearts were darkened. Third lie, second half of verse five, you will be like God. This is the myth of pantheism, the idea that God is everything. Don't get it it wrong. Omnipresence means God is everywhere. That's a big difference between God being everywhere and God being everything. This idea of Monism, all is one and all is God. All things share in one divine essence. You will be God. What a lie. God's personal. He's unique. There's no one like him. It is a lie of preposterous proportions to say that a creature will be like God. Notice how the serpent has moved from subtly, from subtlety, did God actually say, to outlandishness. He starts out, did God actually say? And now he's saying, you will be like God. That's how our adversary works. This last lie is an assertion of power more than it is of truth. Chesterton said, when men stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing, they believe in everything. John Wauk notes, when God is in everything, man loses his privileged place in the universe. Trees and animals acquire rights. Have you ever wondered how it is that there's this big animal rights movement, and even now it's extending to plants? The reason is this idea, you will be like God. Pan-everythingism is how Francis Schaeffer termed it. Augustine, before his conversion to Christianity, believed this. Here was his testimony. And I believed, he said, poor wretch that I was, that more mercy was to be shown to fruits of the earth than to men for whose use they were created. And this idea, you will be like God, is everywhere. It's everywhere. Americans one time were polled on what the two things they wanted the most out of life. You know what they were? I want to be rich and I want to be thin. That's a horror. It's ridiculous. This idea you will be like God, everything from weight loss to stress management to a better golf swing to being a better boss in human resources to the taking of yoga classes to somehow tune in to the God within you. It is a lie that was right there in the garden. 
C.S. Lewis noted that pantheism is a creed not so much false as hopelessly behind the times. Once, before anything existed, before creation, it would have been true to say that everything was God because that was all that existed. But God created. He caused things to be other than himself. And so, the lie you will be like God. Now in verses six and seven, we find the enticement of sin and the brokenness that follows. The woman is enticed by the same temptations that entice us all and have always done so. I want you to notice how John, the apostle John, picks up on these same ideas and calls them a little differently than Genesis three does. In Genesis three, we have the woman saw that the tree was good for food all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh. The woman saw that it was a delight to the eyes, the desires of the eyes. The woman saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, the pride of life. But notice the way these two verses end. The first one, almost in crazy Naivete, she took of its fruit and ate. John, writing thousands of years later, knows better. All these things is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, where has Adam been all this time? You know, when I was a kid and I heard this story, I thought, Adam had to be like on a trip or going, doing something out there somewhere. He, he couldn't have been here for this whole interview, right? I mean, he's, he had to be somewhere else. It's not what the text says. Look with me at verse 6. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Adam had been there all the time. Now, the commands in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, that we've looked at a couple of times here already, those commands were given to Adam before Eve was created. So, in part at least, it is Adam's lack of instruction to Eve that caused her to misunderstand the command since she had never heard it directly, at least as far as we are told. And we see here, do we not, the passivity in Adam even before the fall? Where is his leadership? The act of naming the woman was in some way an act of leadership, and yet here there is none. No words come from Adam in the interview with the serpent, even though it appears now here in verse 6 that he was there all along. And this sad act unleashes a horror upon creation. All the death, all the sickness, all the relational brokenness, all the personal anxieties, all the red lights that you encounter... <laughs> have existed because of this single act. 
She took it and ate. The action here on Eve's part was because she was deceived. She gave some to her husband and he ate. The action was not because she was, he was deceived, but deliberately defying God. I will leave you to, you to discuss at lunch which was worse. <laughs> Immediately, verse 7, several things happened. First, the eyes of both were opened. They could see things that they could not have seen before. There was a stunning moment of recognition, but it was not a moment of wonderful, beautiful insight. It was an insight into horror. They saw, it says, that they were naked. Now, that's for sure something related to physical, right? They eat the fruit and immediately they look at each other, right? They're worried about that, but it's more than that, just as we talked about it last week, that this idea of recognition means that they are feeling shame and guilt and fear. There is now a separation between the two of them and between them and God. The glory of innocent intimacy with God and one another was gone. Opened eyes to a horror. Their first recorded act is so clearly how we still respond to our own shame and guilt and fear. What happens when we have brokenness caused by our own sin? Well, we got to figure out how to cover it up. We got to have some way of dealing with our shame, with our guilt, with our fear. We got to protect ourselves, right? And that's what, that's what Adam and Eve do. They ridiculously take some fig leaves. It could never have occurred to them to make clothing from animals. That was just something that wasn't even in their category of thinking. They take fig leaves. As in the first service, nobody raised their hand on this. I was amazed by it. Has anybody ever seen fig leaves? Raise your hand if you've seen fig leaves. Okay, seven people. Great. Fig leaves do not make really good clothes. They look a little bit like a Mickey Mouse glove. <laughs> and try to sew those together. And they, think about how ridiculous this looked. God had to look down on that and just go, come on. And that's what our works-based righteousness is like. That's what our attempts to deal with our sin is like. It's ridiculous. Taking fig leaves and sewing them together to make clothes, it looked like a fifth and sixth grade boys VBS project is what it looked like. I know this because I taught fifth and sixth grade boys for VBS one year and we had these things where they were supposed to take paint and paint this plastic and they started painting and they were at first kind of being patient but the, the paint didn't stick to the plastic, it just beaded up. And so pretty soon they were painting each other and throwing the projects at one another and the paint all around. And me, being absolutely devoid of any artistic ability, 
didn't know what to do. So I said the next day, we're scrapping the art projects for VBS. We're playing sports. <laughs> but this sewing of fig leaves together is like a fifth and sixth grade boys VBS project. It's ridiculous to think that we can appease the God of the universe for our defiance at him. We cannot do it. Look at what John says in 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. That's where Adam and Eve now found themselves. And there's the last sentence, brothers and sisters, is such a word of hope. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. A solution has arrived. The answer to our sin and rebellion is found in the death of Jesus Christ. He appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Now, we mentioned at the beginning of the service that Romans chapter 5 is the New Testament commentary on what happens in Genesis chapter 3. I invite you to just skip your Bible over to Romans chapter 5 for just a second. It deserves a, several sermons in itself, but I just want to point out five ways in which Jesus solves the problem of sin. Five ways he solves the problem of sin. Romans 5.12 says, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We're in a mess. How are we going to solve that? Well, Romans 5.15 tells us the first way, the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Grace and the free gift by grace abounded from the one man, Jesus Christ. And if we don't understand the horror of sin, we won't understand how radical and amazing this truth is for us. Grace, the free gift of it, abounded from Jesus to you and me. Verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. So God judges sin and condemnation is upon every one of us. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Sin brought condemnation to us all. The gift brings justification. What that means is that even though we are horrible sinners, God will look at us through the righteousness of Christ and declare us just. Third thing, verse 17. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Sin brought death, but grace and the gift of righteousness brings life. We can have eternal life with Jesus Christ forever. There's a restoration with a life eternal. Verse 9, uh, verse 18, 
Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. One sin brought condemnation. One act of righteousness, Jesus' death, brings justification and life. And lastly, verse 19, one man's disobedience made us all sinners. We are sinners before we sin. But one man's obedience made righteous ones, as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so that by the one man's obedience, Jesus Christ's obedience, in his life and in his death, the many will be made righteous. These all happen because God sent his son to die for us. Now, <clears throat> there's a lot of debate today about whether or not there was such a thing as a real Adam. I want to submit to you that none of these things are true if Adam is not a real person who really sinned, because that's how Paul understands it. Adam's a real person who really sinned, and none of it is true if Jesus Christ is not the God-man who really died to pay the penalty for our sins. This morning, as we look at this origin of evil, I hope we understand the utter sinfulness of our own selves and our own sin. And we look to Jesus Christ hanging on a cross, declaring it is finished. Pray with me. Father, drive these truths home deep within our hearts. Help us to be humbled by our own sinfulness. And help us to rejoice in the great grace that you have brought us through the death of your son, Jesus. We thank you for the ministry of the triune God. Father, you love us. Jesus, you joyfully went to the cross to pay for our sins. Spirit, you opened our eyes to see the truth. And I pray that that same operation of the triune God would be at work in everyone in the sound of my voice who hasn't put their faith in Jesus. Help them to comprehend your love. Jesus, Help them to see that your death at the cross pays for their sin. And Holy Spirit, open their eyes, quicken them, awaken them to the truth of this good news. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Lord, we pray that we would understand even in a greater way this beautiful grace that is greater than all our sin. In Jesus' name, amen.